morning. Sorry, I'm a little tangled here. All right, that'll work better. Hey, grab your Bibles, your readers, whatever you're going to use this morning. Turn to 1 John. We're back in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 18 through 27. A um, couple things while you're looking for 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Um, one is, I just want to encourage you to bring your Bibles, uh, bring your readers, take notes. We really do retain what we learn more if we're engaged with what's going on, writing some things down. Um, maybe uh, one of the ways that I do this is I bought a wide margin Bible so I could actually write in the margin of the Bible as I'm hearing what I'm being taught. So there's all kinds of ways, but we want you to engage. The other thing while you're looking for it that I just want to kind of say to you is, um, today would be a perfect example of why there's a value for us to teach through a book of the Bible. I'm not sure I've ever heard a sermon taught on this particular section of Scripture. I know I've never taught on it. I'm not sure if I were told, hey, you can pick anywhere you want in the Scriptures today to preach, that I would have landed here. But the discipline of us going through a book verse by verse is it causes us to have to teach all of it. And there's some really, really good stuff in uh, this particular section of chapter 2 of 1 John. So with that, let me read it for you. John writes, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Verse 22, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the anti-Christ, denying the Father and the Son. And no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the power of scripture. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the discipline of uh, teaching through First John. And even for me and the week that I've had and in preparation and, and just the things that you've stirred in my own spirit, I just thank you for that. I pray right now as we uh, unpack this amazing letter, this section of this amazing letter, that you would speak to each one of us, that your Holy Spirit would teach and guide and direct. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the deal. In order to fully understand the scriptures, in order to really get what the, the author is writing, we have to know the context for which the letters are written. And the more we know the context, the more we can make application because we know why it was written for the particular first readers, the more we understand. So you know what I mean by context? By context, all I'm saying is the more we know the circumstances surrounding the writing of that letter, what was going on when the letter was written, what was going on in the person who wrote the letter. All of the, the same is true with the Gospels. The more context we have, the more, uh, the, the better we are at making application for them, the first readers, 
and for us. And so what I want you to remember in this case is that, that this particular letter was written to one of John's churches who were going through a pretty tumultuous time. As a matter of fact, there's been a church split. And they've gone through this difficult season. And there's these, these people who have risen up and they've began to teach a false gospel. They've begun to teach a false message about Christ. And, and so all of that false teaching has created discontent within the church. And it's created a split. And so the, the thing that it just really hit me as I was putting this together is, is I don't know if you've ever been through one of those seasons. I don't know if you've ever been through a really difficult season in the church. I don't know if you've ever been through a church split, but it is gut-wrenching. It is one of the most difficult things I've ever endured, actually, in the, in the body life of the church. And the fact of the matter is when a church goes through a split, not only is the body, the church affected, but really the whole community is affected. There is this ripple effect that comes out of it. And so there's all this, this friends turning on friends and, and all of this emotion. It's just such a difficult thing to go through a split. But imagine being John. Imagine being the pastor of that church. Imagine your church going through a split and, and just how it must have been like a punch in the gut for John. And it's in the wake of that that John is writing this particular letter. It's in the wake of that, that tumultuous season and probably that, that difficult, gut-wrenching thing that he's going through that he sits down and he pins this letter to his church. So one of the things we, we know about John and that we've said is that we're going to call this series The One. And the reason we're calling it The One is because John had this, this very particularized uh, experience with Jesus, that he had this personal encounter with Jesus, so much so that he referred to himself as The One Jesus loved, not as a statement of arrogance, not as a statement of, of pride, but really as a statement of amazement. What he was really saying is, even me, I, I, even me with all of my sin, with all of my foibles, with all of my shortcomings, I am the one Jesus loved. And then he writes this letter to help you and I to understand how to have that same sort of experience with God where we realize even with all of my shortcomings, even with all of my difficulties, even with all of the ways I fall short, I am still the one Jesus loved. And the thing is, when we realize that we're the one that Jesus loves, it allows us to love others because we love out of the love that we receive from God. So when we understand that we're the one, then we can be the one for others. And there's this picture of, of John writing this letter and helping people to understand, no, you need to understand who the Son is and the love of the Son in such a way that you can say of yourself, I'm the one Jesus loved, and then you can love others. And this will protect the church from schisms, from being split, from having those types of seasons where we go through that. So there's this picture in this, in this gospel, in the, or in this letter, where, where he's saying, look, there's, there's going to be false teaching. There's going to be division in the church. And, and I want you to stay connected to the one that loves you in spite of your shortcomings. And, and this particular section of this particular letter is helping us to understand how do we abide in Christ? How do we stay connected to God? How do we have fellowship with God amidst the opposition? I want to say that one more time. This particular portion of 1 John informs you and I how to stay connected to the Father. And in turn, as we stay connected to the Father, we'll have unity with one another. So it's in response to this division and, and this false teaching that John writes. Look at verse 18. And again, we're going to stay in, in, in 1 John 2, 18. We're going to start in 18. But keep your Bibles open um, to that because we're going to keep coming back to the same section. So he says, Dear children, verse 18, this is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming... 
coming. Even now the Antichrist has come. This is how we know it's the last hour. And the first thing we can see is John's affection for his church. He says, dear children. He's not saying that in a belittling way. He's not trying to put them down. He's not saying it in any kind of condescending tone. What he's saying is, I'm your pastor and I love you. He has a great affection for them. So he refers to them as dear children. And then he says, this is the last hour. And we have to stop there and we have to take a few minutes and unpack, well, what does John mean by that? Because this is a very much a term that is only used by John in the writings of Scripture, this idea of the, the last hour. And the, the problem is, either John was wrong, or think about it, either he was wrong or he meant something other than we only got 60 minutes. Right? We only got another hour and then something's going to happen. And even if he was saying, well, it's, it's, it's pretty quick. It's like the last hour. You know, it's going to happen pretty darn quick. Then we would still look back and say that he was wrong because we know lots of days have passed and weeks have passed and years have passed and decades have passed and centuries have passed since John wrote this. So it doesn't really feel like the last hour if 2,000 years have passed since he wrote this down. So we got to ask the question, well, if he didn't mean it's the last minutes, what exactly did he mean? And so what I want to do is I want to help you to understand that. And the best way I can do it is to kind of take you on a little bit of a history lesson, a history of mankind. And I'm going to tell the story of mankind by using chapters so that you understand what John was saying. But the first chapter of the history of mankind would be creation, right? It starts in the garden. God creates Adam and Eve. He creates humankind, and he puts them in this garden of, of perfection, and there is perfect unity between God and man, and there is this, this season, this, this beautiful season. And we would call that chapter the garden, or, or we could call it perfection, or whatever you wanted to call it. That's the first chapter. But then the second chapter starts, and it starts with the sin of man. It starts with our separation from God. And then the second chapter plays out, and it's this picture of God putting together a redemptive path to bring man back to perfect relationship with him. There is this, this picture of God moving throughout the scripture. So chapter 2 starts with sin, but, but then there's this picture of a heavenly father who is laying out a redemptive plan. So as we read through the Old Testament, we see person after person who comes to show us what the Christ will be like when he comes, it's all anticipating, like any good novel, every chapter is anticipating the next chapter, the next amazing thing that God is going to do. So there was the garden, then there was the fall, and the second chapter, we could just put a title over that chapter as the Father. We see the work of the Father, and then the Gospels come, right, and Jesus is born, and we start the third chapter of human history. The third chapter is Jesus' life, his, his ministry on the earth, his going to the cross, his his being buried and his rising from the dead. There's this picture of, of God changing everything for us. So this little section of humankind is only some 32 years, but it's so significant because it gives us this new and amazing way to relate to the Father, that Jesus has come and now you and I have access to the Father. We can enter the Holy and Holies. We have a different sort of access to the Holy Spirit, all of this going on. So you have that first chapter, which is the garden, right? You have the second chapter, which I've just, in my creativity, called the Father. Then you have the third chapter, which we could call the Son. And then starting in Acts, we have the fourth chapter. And this is Jesus ascends. And he says, if I ascend, I'm going to send the 
Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to guide you. And so the, the, the next chapter is really the establishment of us, the establishment of, of his church. And he says, through the Holy Spirit working through you, I'm going to tell the world about the work of Jesus Christ and how he came and he showed the Father's love by going to the cross and rising from the dead. I'm going to emp empower you to take that message to the entire world, to every tribe and every nation. And that's the chapter that we're in right now. And so in some ways, John is saying, look, we are in the final chapter because when Jesus returns again, then I'm going to set everything back to the way it was in the garden. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth and we will have, excuse me, perfect unity with the Father. So in some ways, John is saying, this is a final chapter, that we are in the final stages of, of what's going on. So I've said all that and now I'm going to contradict myself just a little bit. Because the scriptures also tell us that we need to live our lives as, each, as if it's the last minute. As if we really only have 60 minutes left or maybe even a minute and a half left. That there is this need for us to anticipate when the fourth chapter is going to close. That it could happen at any minute. And so throughout the gospels, Jesus is teaching, hey, be careful. This could come at any minute. You don't know the time or the place. As a matter of fact, if someone stands on the stage, if someone teaches you that they know because they can look at human history exactly when Jesus is coming back, then you should run. Because they know something that, that nobody else seems to know. So John was there when, when Jesus was teaching in Matthew 24. And Jesus said, about the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. As it is, was in the days of Noah, which he's just saying it was pretty much a big surprise when the flood came. So it will be with the coming of the son of man. So John knows he doesn't know the exact hour. He's not saying this is going to happen right now. What he is saying, this is the final chapter that's, that's coming about. And then, and then John was there when Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, he says, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. John is telling them, look around you. No, look around and see these guys who are teaching, these antichrists are teaching. This is a sign that it's the last chapter. This is a sign to you and I that it is the last hour. These antichrists are going to rise up. So in the second part of verse 18, he says, this is how we know that it's the last hour. There's opposition to the truth about who Jesus is. So that's the opening sentence, if you will. Verses 19 through 27 really are put into place to help us to understand how it is we are to combat, if you will, these false messages. How we are to stay connected to the Father amidst opposition that will be all around us. How do we stay connected to the one who loves us beyond our wildest imagination. So what I'm calling this is that for the rest of this, there are, there are two keys to abiding in Christ. And the first key is that we lean into the Holy Spirit. That we, as the people of God, lean into the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 20. Verse 20, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. You have the Holy Spirit in you to guide you, to direct you, to help you to understand what is true and what is not true. You have this thing called the Holy Spirit and you need to learn to lean into the Holy Spirit, tap into that, that amazing power that God has given you through 
the death and resurrection of his son because it was the son's work that gives us the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 27. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. The Holy Spirit remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all these things and as this anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as he taught you, remain in him. If you ever wondered if the Trinity is really in Scripture, because the word Trinity doesn't appear in Scripture, and you'll hear some people say, well, that's not even in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. From the very beginning of Genesis all the way through. And here we have this short little section, just from, from verse 18 to 27. We see the Trinity. We see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit. And if you deny the Father, Son, you don't have the Father. And if you accept the Son, you have the Father, and he sends you this anointing, this Holy Spirit. We see all three at work. The Trinity is central to our theology. It has to be. And then John says these amazing words. He says, you don't need anyone to teach you. Now, here's the problem with that. If we're not careful, we can misinterpret what he's saying, and then we become people who do everything on our own. And, and clearly, John's not saying you don't need anyone to teach because he's writing a letter to teach them. The purpose of the letter was to teach them something. So he's not saying you shouldn't come under anyone's teaching, that you don't need anyone to, to, to step up and to help you to understand what's going on. We all need that in our lives. We need teachers in our lives. So if he's not saying that, what is he saying? Well, that's why we have to understand the context of the letter. Because you see these false prophets, they had, they had risen up, these false teachers had risen up, and what they've said to the people is, look, I have received a special word from God. I have a new revelation a supposed revelation from God and my revelation trumps whatever you thought you knew I have new knowledge I have new revelation and and if you listen to me that will correct anywhere where you were misinformed or misunderstood and so they became looked up to and, and their voice became something that people leaned into and and John's saying look you have the Spirit of God in you, and the Spirit of God will help you to discern, and you don't have to just rely on what people say, that you can actually ask the Spirit of the Lord, is this truth, does this line up with what I've already been taught? And so the problem is that these, these false teachers would rise up and they would use this as a trump card, if you will, to say, no, now, what I've been told is the truth, and anything else is false. So it's not that they didn't need to come under the teaching of somebody, it's that they didn't have to follow the teaching blindly. And so the application for you is, you need to pay attention to what I'm saying, but you need to know that I could very well stand on this stage and I could say something in error. I am just a person who is trying to listen to the Lord and, and, and unpack what I think the Lord wants me to say, but, but I am not speaking in a way that could never have error. I'm not hearing from God and saying everything's perfectly. So what do you need to do? You need to test everything and hold on to the good. That's what the word of God says. Listen with a discerning spirit. Take it back. Look at the word of God. Ask yourself, is this really what God is saying? It's okay for you to have discernment as you listen to teachers. As a matter of fact, you should have discernment. And you should study the word of God in such a way that you can apply discernment. So look at verse 27. He says, this anointing teaches you about all things, and this anointing is real, not counterfeit. Just as he has taught you, remain in him. Here's what I want you to know. There, that moment where you came to the understanding of who Jesus is. For some of you, and I was thinking the first service, I had a friend in the service who just accepted Christ in the last week. You know, for him, in that moment, when it finally made sense, we'd had lunch and we'd talked this through and he had to go away and he had to think about it and, and he finally called me and said, I get it. 
Well, guess what? He didn't just get it. The Spirit of God revealed truth to him. So whenever that was, whether it was last week or years ago, the moment that it all made sense, it was the Spirit of God helping you to understand that, no, Jesus really is my only hope. I really am a broken, fallen, sinful person. You saw your own, the word is depravity. You saw your own, your own place and you said, I can't save myself, but there's a God who loves me so much that he sent his son to die for me. At the moment that all that made sense, it was the spirit of God teaching you. It was the spirit of God making that clear to you. Anytime you read the scriptures and it makes sense to you, that's the spirit of God revealing to you. So John writes, don't be misled. You have the Holy Spirit to guide you, to protect you. And you have to lean into that Holy Spirit in order to protect yourself from opposition. So the first key to us is to lean into the Holy Spirit. And the second thing is that we have to hold on to the truth. So the first safeguard is the Holy Spirit and the second is the truth. Uh, it's important to say this. Uh, I did not do this in, a, uh, in order of importance. Um, really, the better way would have been to put this up there as like a circle and, and two parts of a whole or something. They're just, they're numbered so that you can remember them, but they're not one or the other. You need both of these things in your life in order to uh, stay connected to the Father, in order to safeguard you from false teaching. So what I want you to do is look at verse 21, then we're going to look at verse 24 and 27. Again, all of this, the rest of this passage was 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 put together to help us understand how to be safeguarded. So verse 21, he says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. You've already been told the truth. You've already come to the understanding of who Jesus is. You already have that, so hang on to that. And then in verse 24, he says, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning, from the very start of your walk of faith, remember that that, just hold on to that. Make sure it remains in you. And if it does... You also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promises you, eternal life. And then verse 27, he says, Just as it has taught you, the Holy Spirit has taught you, remain in him. If you know the truth, if you really know the truth, if you make sure that you hang on to the truth, if you remain in the Father, then he promises us eternal life. We talked about eternal life last week, and the idea of eternal life isn't just this, this insurance plan that we have when we get to heaven. It's life that starts right now. This is eternal life, that you know the Son, and you know the Father who sent the Son. And so we begin to know God, and we get, begin to know Jesus right now in this life. Our life begins because we remain in him. And we know from the scriptures that when we remain in Jesus that we bear fruit and that that helps us to stay connected to the vine. And so you think about it, John is, is writing this letter, 1 John, but John also wrote the Gospel of John. And so he had to be thinking about John 15, the vine and the branches. And I was going to read it for you, but I wanted to show it to you in this video instead. So let's watch this video and then we'll continue on. I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every one that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bring forth more fruit.
If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. Men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. In this my Father is glorified, that ye bear much fruit. Jesus said, if you remain in me, you'll bear fruit that lasts. If you remain in me, you'll have this intimacy with the Father. And First John says, and this is what he promises you. When you hold on to the truth and lean into this Holy Spirit, he promises us eternal life. That's an amazing promise. The Holy Spirit and truth working together to give us this abiding nature in Christ. But the question we got to ask is, what's the truth? If I'm told I have to hang on to the truth, well, what exactly is the truth that I need to hold on to? And most scholars would tell you that when John writes, the, 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 listen to the message that you already received, hold on to what you heard from the beginning, what he's referring to is his gospel. What he's referring to is the fourth gospel, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He wrote that gospel some 30, 40 years after the other gospels were penned. And he wrote it because these false teachers had risen up within the church and they were telling people, look, Jesus isn't, God, he was just a great man. He was an amazing man. They couldn't deny Jesus because history was too recent and everybody knew Jesus really was and they still were very aware of the amazing miracles he performed. But these false teachers would rise up and they were saying, you know, he couldn't have been divinity. He wasn't divinity as a matter of fact. He was just a man that lived such a great life that God decided to do something very special with him. So John sits down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he writes the Gospel of John and the Gospel of John is put into place to tell us who Jesus really was to make sure that we know that he was there in the beginning. That he is eternal, that he is part of the Trinity, that he came and he sacrificed. As a matter of fact, it helps us to understand that Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and became a servant, but not just a servant, a servant who went to the cross and died so that you and I can have eternal life. So the, when he says, remember what you have been taught, he's pointing them back to the gospel and making sure they understand that it's all rooted in Jesus. That everything is rooted in understanding and knowing that Jesus really is who he said he was. He really is eternal. He really is part of the Trinity. And that's why if you go back to the very beginning of 1 John, 
he starts with the incarnation because that's the central theology that we have to hold on to. Because if the Trinity isn't real, if Jesus really isn't eternal, if he really wasn't sent as part of the Trinity, then we have nothing to hold on to. The gospel means nothing. It all unravels with that one truth. Jesus has to be fully man and fully God for the cross to mean anything to you and I. Jesus said there's going to be a time that will come when people will worship me in spirit and in truth. In the fourth chapter of human history, we will worship in spirit with the Holy Spirit and the truth of who Jesus really is. Why is this so important that we talk about it this morning? Why do we need to understand this every bit as much today as the readers in the first century needed to understand it? Because the gospel is still under attack. Because people still want you to believe that Jesus was just a really, really cool guy. That he did some really neat stuff. And that he could teach some really amazing messages. But the fact that he's divinity, I'm not so sure. That message is perpetuated. False teachers in John's day were teaching that Jesus was a great man. That he just, he did some really good stuff. But the problem is, that's still the message that's perpetuated today. And, and I'm going to give you a few examples of this. And I really hesitated to do this. I, I prayed about it, whether I would do this. And I want to be careful here. Um, I do not want you to hear me correct or to help you understand the false teachings that we are being bombarded with is any kind of hate talk. Because we are called to love others. And we are called to leave judgment in the hands of the Holy Spirit. But I need you to know that when the Jehovah Witness tells you that it's all the same, it's not. It's not all the same because Jehovah Witness believe that there's one God, God the Father, and that God the Father created Jesus, and there the gospel is gone. Because if God created Jesus, and they actually say that he created Jesus to be the archangel Michael, and do they see that, that Jesus did amazing things? They, they would say that. They would tell you that. But they don't believe that he's divinity. And they don't believe that he's part of the Holy Trinity. And so what they say is he's amazing, but he's not God. He's not part of the creator. He was created. And that truth we need to understand. And then what they tell you is that there are 144,000 people who are given the gift of spiritual interpretation. That they alone can tell you what the scriptures say. Does it sound familiar to you? Because John said that, that these guys say that they have a special revelation from God. And that you need to listen to them because what you knew. And so there's 144,000 people who can tell us what the Bible really says. And John says, no, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you to discern what is truth and what is not true. The Mormons will teach you that we all have the opportunity to become gods and goddesses. Every man has the opportunity to become a God. And that Jesus was one of those men who became a God. And therefore, there is no trinity in the Mormon belief. What they believe is that Jesus will actually judge the earth, but he's going to do it standing alongside some guy named Joseph Smith, who was given, listen to this, new revelation. He was given new revelation to actually correct where we were wrong about the Bible. And his revelation trumps whatever we thought we would know. And so we have to listen to what Joseph Smith said, because Joseph Smith knows what truth is. And John says, no, you need to listen to the Spirit of God that lives inside of you, that helps you to know what is truth and what is false. 
The Spirit of God is inside of us. And again, I don't say these things so that we, we build some kind of hatred towards, towards other faith. We are called to love other people, but you need to know the reason for the hope that you have. You need to do the good work of understanding what you believe so that when you have those conversations, you know what you believe and you know what you don't believe. And so you can hang on to the truth and not be led astray because John's saying it's important that you lean into the Holy Spirit and you hold on to the truth. Muhammad. You know, Muhammad taught us that Jesus really did live. And he actually says that Jesus lived a life without sin, but he was just a man. He was a great prophet, but he was just a man. And so there goes the Trinity. There goes the cross. There goes our salvation. And we could do the same thing with, with the Hindus and the Buddhists. And, and again, it's important for us to know what it is we believe. But here's the other part of this that I think is so amazing. It's easy for us to look outside and say, this is how the, the Christian message is being bombarded, how the truth of Jesus Christ is being pulled apart. But the minute we start to just look outside and stop looking at our own hearts, we realize that, that we can do the same thing. You see, we come to our place of faith when we realize how messed up we are and we accept Jesus as our personal Savior. And in that moment of conversion, we begin to dilute the gospel. We begin to say, yeah, it's Jesus, and if I'm just a good Christian... Well, I just got to be a better Christian. And so we work harder to be a good Christian. And so in all of our being a good Christian, we get busier and busier. And we get on that good Christian treadmill and then we burn ourselves out. Because we think it's Jesus and something else. And so we say, well, it's got to be Jesus and going to church. But that's going to save me. It's got to be Jesus and getting baptized. If I just get baptized, that's going to save me. Boy, it's, it's Jesus in church membership. It's Jesus in serving. It's Jesus in, and it's not Jesus in anything. It's just Jesus. That's all there is. It's just Jesus. When we understand that all we have is Christ, and so John is saying, look, lean into the Holy Spirit and know that it's all about Jesus. When, when we can convince ourselves otherwise, we need to go back and hold on to the truth of who Jesus is. That's the difference. 2 Corinthians tells us that we need to not be unaware of Satan's schemes. 1 Peter tells us that he's a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And how will he devour us? He will devour us by getting us to believe anything other than Jesus. The moment Christianity came into existence, the moment Jesus went to the cross and died and resurrected, in that moment when the Christian movement happened, the message of Jesus has been under attack because it unravels everything we believe. So you got to know the truth. Lean into the Holy Spirit and hold on to the truth that Jesus really is eternal. That he really did come incarnate. That he really was fully God and fully man. That he really did go to the cross. He really was dead for three days. And he really did rise again from the dead. So that you and I can have intimacy with the Father. So that we can remain connected to a Father that loves us beyond our wildest imagination. The key that John unfolds in this letter to abiding is that we lean into the Holy Spirit and that we hold on to the truth. We're going to end the service by going back to the song that we sang right before I came up here. And Mel's going to come up and uh, Ron and maybe the band. We'll see. I'm not sure. Um, but we're going to sing that song. And I'd like to really, I'm going to take a risk here. Um, I would like to invite you to come down here and sing it with me. And you can go back to your seat after we sing, and this is how we're going to close the service. But this is a declaration. 
This song is a declaration. This song are words of truth that we need to hold on to. And you know why God said that we need to sing spiritual songs and we need to sing songs? Because when we sing songs, you guys can come on up. When we sing songs, it becomes part of our heart. It becomes part of our DNA. And so the win for me today would be that if you leave with these words on your heart, if you spend all week singing, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, three in one. Those are powerful words. So my desire for you, and this is the risk, is I want you to come and stand right here and sing this song with me and with Mel. We'll let Mel actually do the singing part. And then when we're done, I'm going to pray over you, and we'll go from there. Thanks.